Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten. I am 50% of your Matt hosts, Matt Monagle, and I am joined by the other 50% of your Matt hosts, Matt Donato. Matt, say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. God, you're so obedient. I love it so much. You make a great co-host. Thank you. That's all I ever aspire to be. <laughs> oh, that's sad. Uh, so if this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. You, you might have heard by now that we talk about the movies that uh, didn't quite gather a critical consensus upon their initial release. Our criteria is we talk about films that have five or fewer Rotten Tomatoes reviews, just our way of kind of finding the stuff that fell through the cracks of, of the horror genre specifically. But it's not just Matt and I every single week. We're typically joined by an awesome guest, and we have an awesome guest that Matt is going to introduce for us. Yes, this week on the podcast, uh, I wanted to bring on Anya Stanley, who you know on the internet as just a wealth of knowledge of all things horror, and personally, I think one of the better horror writers that we have in our generation right now. Uh, Puts me to shame all the time with her articles, and I love promoting them just for that reason. So, Anya, thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, dropping down to our level for one time. So Anya, one of the first things that, that we always ask our guests when they're coming on is kind of the early days of, of how they connected with the horror genre and, you know, what maybe that first movie was or first couple of movies that that they were shown at too young an age. So kind of walk us through there. Like, obviously, you weren't always a horror fan. Where did that kind of begin for you? Uh, I would say that it began with Goosebumps, like a lot in the 90s children. Um, and then it was a lot of the usual stuff that a lot of people who are hard talk about like gremlins and the monster squad and and um actually for me it was also dark shadows reruns my mom used to watch Dark shadows uh, the 80s one uh, she had the she had it on vhs and i used to watch those all the time with her but the the big catalyst was um fire in the sky actually of all movies which i don't know if it counts as a horror movie it's more sci-fi isn't it I mean, sci-fi horror, it's, it, it all goes hand in hand, I think, in, uh, as long as you're looking at things in the right light. And we don't want to have that discussion of what is horror here, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, my mom, she was watching it one day um, on TV, and I was a very curious little child. And I said, you know, what, what you watching? She's like, yeah, come sit with me and just watch it. And uh, she didn't warn me or anything. She had seen the movie before. She did not warn me. Um, what was what was to come and then that big abduction sequence comes in and I was traumatized I had nightmares for weeks and then after that I asked my dad to take it to the video store and I started um, trying to find other movies like that and I ended up watching I think I think Alien was the next one I watched my parents were they're nuts they, they let me watch whatever I want um, so yeah and then after that it was off to the races it was it was all horror all the time and then you know, I grew up in a time when Joe Bob Briggs was on TV every weekend and you could watch him uh, uh, on Monster Vision. And so I was able to watch Poltergeist and, and uh, I think one of the Chud movies. And then, you know, it just escalated from there. So that that was how I got in horror. Now, I'm, I'm glad you talked about the, um, the, the video store experience because Donato and I always kind of have this thing for our show, which is basically that, you know, you don't really become a horror fan until you start discovering stuff on your own. So you mentioned Alien, but you know what were like? When did you start finding stuff? And like, because we all know that your your thing now is is the uh, gang gang cult shit. That is your brand that nobody else can step on. <laughs> when did you start finding stuff that you were like, oh, this is like this is what an Anya horror movie looks like. This is my shit. Oh yeah, okay. So <laughs> it was definitely Halloween Six, um, the, the Curse of Michael Myers. And if you follow me on Twitter, like I talk about it all the time. Nobody else seems to really like this movie, but I absolutely, like, genuinely, unironically love this movie. And um, 
in the movie, if you haven't seen it, it's Michael Myers, but there's a cult involved. And it's um, it's weird. Not everybody likes it. Nobody likes it. I like it, though. And um, that was, once I saw that, and I, I, I think I rented it not expecting anything like that. I, I had seen the prior one, Halloween 5, and it ends with the man in black, and it ends uh, kind of on a cliffhanger. But the, the, the sixth one just kind of, I don't know what they were thinking when they wrote it, but I was happy with, with the result. And um, after that, I asked my dad what I should watch that that has stuff like that where everybody's in on it and the whole town knows what's going on except for, you know, a couple of people who um, are just sucked into the, the conspiracy. And that's when he recommended The Wicker Man. And I got some version of it. There, there's a lot of different versions of The Wicker Man that were floating around in, in video shops. And I got some wonky version that had several very important parts cut out of them. Um, and so that was a really confusing experience, but I still really liked it. And it still had, you know, the, the bombastic ending, you know, with, with uh, Homeboy being burned alive. So, um, and I really don't want to hear anybody complaining about spoilers. That movie came out in, what was that, 1970? When, when did Wicked Man come out? Literally, I think it's late 70s. I'm, I'm looking it up right now, but I mean, because I talk about it all the time, too. And trust me, this is definitely a safe space for spoilers when we're talking about movies okay, that, are, right, that are generations old. <laughs> I just, it's almost like every month if I talk about a movie that came out like before 1980, someone's like, oh, thanks for spoiler. And they're, they're like genuinely mad at me. And so it's, uh, I don't have any sympathy Listen, even, for you at even, that point. Even the remake at this point is beyond spoiling. I mean, like literally, <laughs> if we're talking about the remake, we're allowed to spoil that. And that was only how many years ago. So we're, we're okay with that. And I'm glad that you're out there championing movies that you believe in, like uh, Halloween 6, because we all have our The Gallows, you know? <laughs> we all have that movie that we know no one likes, but... If you're me, you're gonna go out there and go, yeah, the gallows rules. You all are wrong. So what's keep you, you got? Let's see, we well, go ahead. Got the gallows, and then there's um, the <laughs> Halloween Six. Um, what Matt? What's what's your? Yeah. Yeah. What Monogle? What's yours? Yeah. Well, I mean, the one that I talk about the most is um, Black Coat Starter, but that's a good one. Everybody mm-hmm. loves that. I was gonna one. say that's so, ju- that's actually well liked. So what is the mm-hmm. what is your the gallows? What is your Halloween Six? What is my what is my movie that's that's could you could make a case that it's not good that I love? Um, ah, man, I don't know. I I, I know that I, I got a lot of flack from a lot of people when I um, rather enjoyed The Intruder earlier this year, and I think it's going to hold up pretty well over the test of time. There you go. That's definitely one of them. But yeah, I'll, I'll have to think about that a little bit more because I'm um, I'm usually decidedly middle of the road when it comes to... I, there are more movies that everybody loves that I don't like than there are movies that most people don't like that I love. I mean, you're a mainstream apologist too. You're Mr. Like if it's like a <laughs> mid-level mainstream blockbuster and it's coming out in theaters and no one likes it, like you're guaranteed to like it. I am Mr. Three out of five stars. Like yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're Mr. That was a movie. Yeah. I was like, that was fine. There were some good performances. What did you want? This isn't art. This is summer at the Regal. <laughs> this isn't art. <laughs> well, you know, you know what I mean? Um, well, I want to ask you too, Ani, because one of the things that's really cool about following you on Twitter, other than like the greatest writer of the generation thing, yada, yada, is, you know, you've been really open about kind of your oldest son and his relationship to horror. And um, when we talk about the movie in a minute, he's kind of at the same age as the lead character in this. So I'm sure you'll have some interesting insights there. But, you know, as a parent who is trying to figure out what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, you know, and every kid being different, finding that sliding scale for him. What's it been like kind of growing his relationship with the genre and allowing him to find stuff that he likes? Uh, at first, he was at first I was actually uncomfortable with him uh, being so into horror. Uh, he had started watching, I think it was the Friday the 13th movies. 
and um, he kept going back and replaying certain kill scenes over and over and over again. And at first, I was like, "Should I? Should I intervene? Should I? Is this a red flag? Is he gonna start like torturing animals soon?" And then at one point, he um, turned to me and said, "Oh, I think I figured out how they did it, Mom. He he had replayed the scenes over and over again in order to figure out how the effect was done." And so once I figured out that it was all about the effects and and just pulling back the curtain, that was when I started getting him uh, like liquid latex and theatrical blood and stuff like that. And that's primarily what he watches the gory horror movies for. So with that in mind, that's when I allowed him to watch uh, some of the the gorier 80s stuff like The Burning and and, uh, My Bloody Valentine, just because he seems to fully be aware that... um, it's, it's all smoke and mirrors, that it's all illusions, and that there's a difference between fantasy and reality. And once he established that, I was okay with letting him see, you know, um, uh, you know decapitations every once in a while. <laughs> I mean, that's making it all of the year. Exactly, right. And I mean, that's such a mature take, like, you know, from a kid that age, too, to, like, watch a horror movie. And that's the first thing that he's looking <laughs> at, like, dissecting the filmmaking and things of that nature. Like, I'm so impressed whenever I see, uh, you know, your Twitter or Instagram. And he's out there doing the practical effects himself and working with all the latex and stuff like that. It's so much fun to watch. And it's like, it's it blows my mind. I'm like, I don't even know how they're doing it. And this kid's already figured it out. And he's replicating it. Yeah, he's always he's always been that kind of kid. Even before horror came along, he was, um, he was into magic shows and was always trying to figure out how the magician pulled off whatever illusion they, they pulled off. So he seems to very much be like a... Um, a man behind the curtain kind of guy rather than just taking in the effect. He, he wants to know how it's done and then he wants to do it himself, uh, which has led to some, some very fun times at our house where he'll pretend to be grievously injured or, you know, <laughs> he'll frighten his brother who's, who's five um, and does not like horror at all. Um, so yeah, that, that can be, um, can be kind of a double edged sword. The absolute power can corrupt. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, he just, he, <laughs> With that, we've learned that he's he's even got tastes within horror. He likes ghost stories, and he likes um, he likes the more cerebral stuff. Um, I don't know if I'd call Saw cerebral, but <laughs> he likes <laughs> he likes the stuff where there's there's some kind of um, some kind of uh, contraption used um, in order to. It can't just be a regular knife plunging into the chest kill. He he likes something right. that, that's a little more elaborate. So the Saw movies are great. He hasn't seen any of the collector movies yet. That's, oh my that's god! Up yeah, next. the collection yeah. alone is just uh-huh. yeah. The collection is just a kill masterpiece. But I mean, so two quick questions there too. I mean, one, does he have any favorite kills? Like, is there like just are there kills that he's latched onto and like holds as the standard, like a Savini or something like that? Yeah. And then just number two. Oh yeah, go go with okay, that one first. So the, the, the one that he holds nearest and dearest to his heart was the one that I was talking about on Friday the Thirteenth, where um, uh, what is it, Jason? Um, squishes uh, someone's head and the eye pops out. It's in the, the third one. It's in 3D where the eye pops out towards the screen. And he w- he figured out that, oh, they put it on like a, like a fishing line and pulled it towards the screen. I can see it. If you pause it right here, you can see, you know, where it, uh, where the, the, the fishing line is. So that one is a, is a big one for him. And then the, um, his favorite of all time that he always talks about is in Hatchet, the jaw split, the 360 jaw split in Hatchet. Um, oh, yes. and I almost didn't let him see that cause it's got like copious boobies in it. And, um, I was not sure if I was going to let him do that. But I figure, I mean, he knows what boobs look like. Uh, <laughs> he's seen boobs. Let's just be honest. He's seen boobs. And I feel like I feel like it was hypocritical of me to be totally fine with a jaw-splitting kill and not be okay with fully intact boobs. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so I, I let him watch it. And he's he, he doesn't own it, but he has watched it anytime it's streaming anywhere. So I, I'm 
it's my parental obligation now to let him know if it's streaming somewhere, if Shudder picks it up or Netflix or, or Hulu or whatever, so that he can watch it again. <laughs> One of these days, I just got to buy the movie for him. I was going to say, yeah, just save, save yourself the money of the streaming services and buy the movie already. Exactly. Um, but I mean... No, I mean, Hatchet's a great one, too, because you have John Carl Buchler. I mean, again, if your kid is a, bu- a budding, you know, special effects artist, you need to see something by Buchler. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's holy crap. That stuff is so good. I love Hatchet to this day for those kills that the 360 you just explained, the cut is so seamless when it goes around that you don't notice like the body of the actor being sw- uh, switched out for the actual corpse. And it, he oh couldn't figure God, that, that out either. He had to go look it up. Yeah. Literally, like the cut is so seamless, and you're just watching, going like, I, I don't even know, like it's full view. How did they swap the body out? But yeah, and that is such a nasty rip, or you know, even the arms getting ripped off. That, every kill in that is so vicious. But um, so then this leads into my other question, though, for you. I was gonna say, what is that line that you've drawn so far? Like, is there a you know he can watch anything at this point, or do you have a line where it's like, well, maybe too much nudity, too much sexual uh, sexuality, or something like that? Is that where the maturity level stops? When it comes to the nudity and sexuality, I take it on like a case by case basis. So, like, if we're watching, okay. um, I think it was Jason Goes to Hell, um, with like there's like a like a four minute sex scene in a tent, like we just skip over that particular part. And, and then we'll let them watch the rest of the movie. But okay. um, if there's something where the subject matter is really uh, adult, where I feel like he just won't appreciate the horror because he can't appreciate the, you know, what um, the sexuality or the, the adult themes behind it, then I, I just tell him to wait a few years. Like a Hellraiser is, is a perfect example. I feel like that there, there's so much about pain and sexuality and pleasure that and he might like, you know, uh, the priest and he might like you know some of the effects but i feel like he won't really appreciate the movie for another few years <laughs> sadomasochism movie... takes a little bit to get into <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> there's an age range for that <laughs> so yeah and, and there's definitely a line like i'm not going to show him we are the flesh anytime soon but i'm, I'm cool with <laughs> oh really yeah, no. I, I took him to see ready or not i took him to see crawl and and you know summer horror is is pretty safe for the most part I mean, you were doing the Lord's work in that work realm because and it's so interesting for me to hear, though, because I keep bringing this up like every podcast because we're, you know, talking about our experiences with horror and I, I won't launch into it, but this is just so the opposite of my upbringing. And so like my parents were straight up. If you're not 13, you're not watching PG-13. Uh, if you're not 17, you're not watching R. Like that was my household. So like I didn't get any of that leniency. I didn't get into horror at all. So it's just so interesting to hear like the other mindsets that, and you know, like the totally normal, your kid is like dissecting the movies, you know, like it's totally fine. And my parents were totally like, no, you can't watch anything hard. You're going to turn into a killer or some crap like that. And I'm like, well, turned out okay anyway. Yeah. He was kind of a, kind of a guinea pig for that experience. That experiment. Like I, <laughs> yeah. He, he's, he seems to be fine. His grades are fine. He's got friends, you know, he goes to school dances. He seems to be an okay kid. I haven't seen him torture animals or wet the bed yet. So I feel like he's, he's going to be all right. So you're saying that horror movies aren't the problem. Strange. I don't think they are. I don't <laughs> think they are. I think I think we're all going to be all right. And I think that if you're a if you're a, a horror fan, if you turn out to be a killer, the fact that there's a copy of Child's Play three lying around in your bedroom is not like an indicator that that what what happened was always going to happen. You know. Yeah, it's and again the conversation keeps coming up and it keeps coming into you know politics and stuff like that. Horror movies just you know hey let's just blame horror movies because that's an easy scapegoat and it's just like. Man, how many times do we have to have this conversation? Right, it's, so like, it's just so mindless. All the time. We were yeah. just going to bounce between uh, horror films, video games, and Marilyn Manson. It's, it's all three. Well, as an entire generation of horror fans keeps an eye on your son because he's like patient zero for everybody being like, see? Um, 
my my last question for for you then before we talk about the movie itself is you know the the discovery element now because you travel a lot for festivals you're involved on in the jury on a few of them as well you know you have a pipeline i think of new and independent horror that kind of like rivals anybody out there but where are you finding stuff like what what where do you find your best recommendations are coming from people studios festival organizers stuff like that it's between uh festival organizers um sometimes it's just going to shutter and just seeing what's there um and then the the biggest the, the biggest pipeline for me is twitter i i just i just read other people's tweets and just see what they recommend because despite growing up with hard it was very mainstream stuff and um there i have so many blind spots and so many sequels that i hadn't seen and and um a lot of people um a lot of the people that i follow worked in these video stores and and continue to work in video stores and they're able to recommend so many things that I didn't even know existed until like the last five years of my life. Um, so yeah, it's, it tends to be just word of mouth from Twitter. Well, the video store crowd is still making themselves useful. All these years later, video stores have died, but video store employees are forever. <laughs> that was a bleak note to end on, but Hey, let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you want to be a little happier? <laughs> I know. Well, we're going to talk about a movie that has a video store in it. So I think that that feels like not the worst transition I've ever done in my life. Um, so we're going to talk, we're going to talk about, uh, found, which is a 2012 film by Scott Shermer. And it is sort of a, a very, very low budget, um, kind of super low budget version of, we need to talk about Kevin, if that's a good reference point for you. It's about a 12 year old boy, uh, kind of growing up in every town USA named Marty. He is obsessed with horror films. He is obsessed with graphic novels and comics and kind of has a, a morbid curiosity streak that runs through him. And one day, a few weeks ago, he found while he was kind of going in his older brother Steve's room and looking through his belongings like younger brothers do, he discovered that Steve had a head in a bowling ball bag and um, has learned over weeks of checking and finding new heads in there that his older brother Steve is a serial killer. So found is kind of an intersection of a coming of age film about how you deal with family and the influence of older brothers. It's got a little bit of like that Stephen King-esque vibe to it in that regard. Um, and then it also has some of the weirdest and um, most out there sequences I've seen in a horror film in the last decade. I'm forbidding us to talk about Headless until the moment is right to talk about Headless. So we won't talk about that quite yet. But let's start with the initial impressions. And I, I know that Donato and I had seen this actually again at the New York City Horror Film Festival years and years and years ago. So Anya, let's, uh, let's start with kind of big picture impressions from you. Overall, I liked it. It was a cool movie. Um, Scott Shermer was an unfamiliar name for me. So I had to look him up and his other directing credits were filled with titles that I didn't recognize and they didn't sound as serious as found like Plain Face and The Bad Man and Harvest Lake. So I wasn't familiar with any of his other work and I had nothing to go on when I was going into this except for uh, Donato saying, oh, I think this would be a rally because it's got a messed up kid who likes horror in it. Um, so I, I Which I wasn't, you know, there was no implications being made there, <laughs> to, to be fair. I, I thought it was glad. more of your... I was yeah. very glad to watch it. And um, it, I, I knew that it was going to be low budget, but I didn't expect it to be like shoestring budget. And so... Um, you know, you have to switch gears when you're when you're evaluating. Well, I don't know when, when you're evaluating a film that's obviously produced on this threadbare budget. How much leeway do you guys give for like technical uh, uh, wonkiness? Like, I tend to be more critical of story and character, and I tend not to not not to care so much if the seams show in between transition shots and stuff like that. What do you guys like with that? I mean, I'll say that like 
I rate those kind of movies because, like you just said, it's shoestring. I mean, I would even say this is micro budget. They have no money to work with, but they're actually going into like a slasher realm with the mm-hmm. effects in some points. Uh, you know, Matt, you've mentioned Headless, and we'll talk about Headless soon, which is a fake film within the film. But my kind of take on that, Anya, is make the movie you can make. Um, as long as you're working within your means, as long as you're doing whatever to service a story, yes, I'm going to give you a little leniency if you just don't have the money to pull something off. But if you're kind of doing these things that you know you can't pull off on an effects uh, terminology or like an effects, uh, you know, if you're going balls out and you don't have the money to do it and it looks terrible, then just don't do it. Make the movie you can make and make sure it looks good as much as you can. That's kind of where I draw the line. I'm the same way. Uh, I feel like uh, Sharma gives a very well-told story for the tight purse that he's working with. And there are some things in there, that some tricks that he pulls that are obviously because he doesn't have the budget to do what he wants to do with that this particular scene or that particular moment. And that's okay. I, I'm, I'm willing to overlook that, which normally if it was a, a, like a studio film, I would knock off a star or two because they have the ability to, to um, tell a fuller story and, and support the visuals a little bit better, but this guy doesn't. So I, I just focus on the story and characters and whether he can tell the story well. And I think with, with this film, he did it. I mean, you know, there were a couple of scenes here and there that they showed and, and there were, um, there were a couple of unnecessary fluffy things, um, about the movie, but overall from start to finish, this was a really well-told story and a good angle that I would call it, uh, like the, the, the great value version of we need to talk about Kevin, but, um, there's enough, there's enough of a difference to where it's not a complete knockoff of the film. And it's, it's, um, it's a good angle to explore it from. I would actually compare it to uh, the Killer. I don't know if either of you guys saw that one. Yes, 100%. I, I wrote the Clovage Killer note, like, right first first thing I did when I saw uh, Found again. I rewatched it. I was like, oh, wait, this is kind of very Clovage Killer-esque. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in that, you know, it's, it's we're exploring someone who is not a serial killer, but whose loved one is or might be a serial killer. And, and the fallout from that, it's a really interesting um, exploration of... Of, of growth, sort of like a coming of age, but it, it's different from an exploration of masculinity like we've seen with uh, Super Dark Times or even Juice. This one is more like, um, well, with the Clove Hitch Killer, the boy uh, whose name is Tyler, I think, in the movie, all of his moral and ethical development is contingent upon and mm-hmm. in reaction to his discoveries about his father. And in Found, Marty has some of the same catalyst. Most of his identity of revolves around his brother and what he's done with some heavier environmental fr- factors thrown in. He's, he's bullied a lot more. Um, so I feel like it's uh, it's an angle that's not explored very often. And and the only other example I can think of it is Clove Hitch Killer. It's, it's kind of less nature versus nurture and more of an exploration of this particular person and how much um, how much the bond with, between him and his brother influences his growth as a person. Yeah, to go um, to go back to, to to the question you asked a little bit earlier too, and, and talking about about Marty a little bit, I think the place where I tend to give movies like this, especially if they're not shot in Los Angeles or New York, kind of the biggest amount of leeway is in the performances. Um, I think that that a you know you're going to have a movie, you're going to have a, a cast of a lot of different people. 
I don't think that every performance in Found is particularly even. Uh, I think that some of the performances, like Steve, the the actor that plays his older brother, sometimes kind of pops in and out of, of a little too cartoonish and a little not. But as long as there's enough good performances to kind of lock him into place, then it, it, it'll end up working for me. And I think the the young actor they got to play, Marty, Gavin Brown, um, does such a good job of adding a lot of the ideas because there's a lot of ideas floating around in Found. Um, like you said, I think like learning learned behavior from his older brother is a big part of it. The movie touches on without necessarily trying to say anything about kind of like the line between pretend and real violence and how those can affect him differently for him you know, we spend most of the movie viewing his relationship to death and murder through these videos. And it's, you know, you think that he's going to maybe feel the same way when he sees it in real life, but there's, there's a line there. There's a degree of uncomfortableness that he has with the stuff that happens in real life and some of the, the imagining his brother in that role. That to me is that performance locks in a lot of those other ideas. And I think that if everything was the same and the, the, the lead actor, like the lead kid was just, just worse I think this would struggle, but they, you know, they're not paying off all the ideas that they're talking about, but they're giving it to a young actor who's talented enough to make a lot of that work on his own, even if they're not going to loop out and like close some of the ideas they're kicking around. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you on the performances too. I think that's another place where the budget can show. And like you just said, they're not all even here. And that's kind of where I struggle the most at times. If the performances are wavering between okay, this is a really good scene that they're actually engaged in and they're telling the story well. And then you go to the next scene and it might've been like a quick day where they can only do one take or two takes and you can feel that. That's where I start kind of losing myself in an indie. And that's why to me, I like Found. Don't get me wrong. I think Found is a fucking gut punch of a movie that demands to be seen, whether you like it or not, because it is such... I don't want to say masterclass because it is a very rough indie and it's very micro micro budget, but man, the story that they tell in this, I think it's the bleakest film I've ever seen. And I have seen movies like a Serbian film and shit like that. But um, what they accomplish here and found, and particularly with the child, as you just said, Marty, the uh, main kid played by Gavin Brown. I mean, I'm gutted by multiple scenes in this. And like my heart just is ripped out at certain times because you have a child looking up to his brother and his brother's a terrible, horrible murderer. And one of the first, like, are we, we're okay to spoil? Are we okay here? Like, can I talk about lines that are said and very gory details? Yeah, I think when you introduce the movie by saying the older brother's a serial killer, there's probably only one way the movie's going to end. So I think think we're all right. (laughs) So, I mean, okay. So, I mean, the first, one of the first lines in the film is a narration by Marty. And the introduction we get to found is Marty saying, my brother keeps a head in his closet. Usually they're black women. And it's like, oh, fuck, we're in this, aren't we? And immediately we get the severed head and we find out Marty discovers his brother's quote unquote secret just because he wanted to go bowling. Like, he thinks his brother's this, you know, idol that he can look up to and his brother's so cool and stuff like that. And, like, he just wants to use his brother's bowling ball. And he finds a severed head. And from there, this is a movie about Marty coming to terms with the fact of what Steve is and who Steve is. And that journey is just, man, I I can't say enough how much this movie ruins me. 
Yeah, his performance is, is absolutely amazing. Gavin Brown's performance, I mean. Um, it's not just like crying on command or screaming through a ball gag. It's it's like the pain in his face as he watches the brother he loves disappear. I do wish that they had kind of established that that strong bond between them a little bit more early on in the film because it does seem kind of like um, from the beginning up until the uh, the shaving sequence where, where Big Brother's shaving and he recommends a movie to his little brother. Um, up until then, it kind of seems like they just kind of have a normal big brother, little brother relationship where they're, they, they tolerate each other at best for now. Um, but later on in the film, you can see exactly how much uh, uh, Marty loves uh, his big brother and, and how much he adores him and how much it hurts him, even as a fifth grader, to see the person he loves just slip away entirely and be replaced by a monster. Um, just like... Uh, like Matt was saying, this is the rare bird in which um, the kids are better actors than the parents. Um, some of the some of the the acting is a little bit wonky here and there, but you know what are you gonna do? It's it's a hey. it's an indie movie, um, but the characters themselves are absolutely amazing, and I think that Marty is so emotive. In fact, that the and the script is strong enough that the voiceover narration is actually unnecessary. I don't, I don't think it's necessary at all in the movie. Um, there's a scene where Steve and Marty are chatting while, while Steve is shaving and he recommends Nightbreed to, to Marty and Marty smiles a little bit and he's, his eyes glaze over with warmth. And at that point, there's no need to say, this is the Steve I miss the Steve that was normal. Like we totally get it. And I think that the film's strength is in how lean it is. Just like you were saying, Matt, you were um, talking about the first lines of the film and how it, it sucks you in immediately. There's no fluff. There's no nothing extra about right. how the film starts you off. You're, you're dropped in right away. And I think that with how lean the rest of the film is, if it doesn't add to character or plot, it's generally not shown. And we didn't really need the the, the voiceover to to be there. It was, it was underlining what... Uh, uh, Marty was already showing in his face when Brown was already putting across, and I wish that that the director had had a little bit more faith in in the actor to carry the frame and carry the carry his character along without needing that extra um, that extra push in the voiceover. What did you guys think of that? Yeah, I think it overexplains a little bit. Just like you said, you're already getting everything on the screen, and I'm a very big uh, proponent of you don't have to coddle the audience and you don't have to spell everything out completely and the fact that the film itself and the visuals is telling you everything you need to know i agree with you 100 it's like that extra step of like oh just so you understand what's going on here and it's kind of like no no we understand we're totally cool so yeah i do believe there was a, i wish there was a little more uh faith put in the audience where you know we know what's going on we're understanding it and I, yeah i'm glad you brought up the parents because i did have a note of just okay, the kids, I like the relationship. I like what's going on there. And I like the story they're telling. We didn't really need some of the parent stuff. Um, there's a scene where the father throws the N-word out. And I understand you need that to kind of show the context of where Steve is pulling this hatred from. I mean, you have parents that are also not great people. Or, you know, sorry, the father, I, I'll single out um, as the person who is you know, he's a hateful person as well. He's throwing around racial slurs. And that's where Steve is, you know, that first line of the film going back to it, they're usually black women. Yeah, there's a lot to dissect in this movie. And that line alone with the father being, you know, a racist, unfortunately, we understand where Steve's getting his, uh, his hobby, I guess we'll call it from we understand where his beliefs are coming from. And 
I didn't really like it at all at all times. I feel like it distracted. Um, I'm talking about the parents specifically. I feel like that line of the N word is just a little bit too much of a punch of like, okay, we get he's a bad person. I, I don't know. Did what are your thoughts on using that as a, a trope? Um, I think that it's uh, it's it can be a little heavy handed at this point in in time. I, I don't know because you know we live in a time where um, maybe oh, 10 years or so ago you would only really be considered racist if you dropped the N-word. But we live in a time now where racism is so much more insidious that you don't need that hammer drop. You know, we're, we're fully aware of systemic issues. We're aware of microaggressions is now a term in, in, the, in the cultural um, consciousness. We don't really have to have that, that, that hard R at the end of the word to really know that someone is a racist. And at this point, to me, I, I felt the same way that you did, Matt, where it's, it seems a little bit unnecessary and super, superfluous or, or maybe like the easy answer. That might be the better way to put it. It's just the easy way of saying this guy's a bad guy. And I feel like that it, it could, the film could have been a little bit more clever and it had the ability to because they were so clever with how, um, how Marty uh, took in all of that information and how Steve put that information across. Like it, it was discordant with how the, the father was just like such a hammer drop. It was, it was more of a, like a, not a hammer drop, a sledgehammer of, of racism, as opposed to this kind of, um, um, almost like they were slowly steeped in a brew of racism. Whereas the father was just kind of like, he was like a good old boy out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I think that it's a good point with the timing too, because this movie was made in 2012 and it's not that, not that far off, obviously, but it just kind of goes to show how much things have changed even from 2012 to go back to what you said about, you know, we don't need that word anymore to know that those kind of uh, feelings are being felt in the father. But again, maybe in 2012 we did. It was a different time. So I, I, that's a good point to bring up. See, this is why I like having our, the guests that we do on the show because I'm just sitting over here listening and I'm like, oh, I, oh, that's a good, oh, that's a good point too. So, and then I'm like, oh shit, I had like a, I'm a co-host. I have to talk. Um, <laughs> I mean, you don't have to if you don't want to. Well, no, I mean, I feel like I should wait a little bit. Um, I, I've been trying to figure out while you guys were talking how I feel about the voiceover too, because I've just been thinking about that a little bit. And I think I think I agree that we don't need certainly as much of it, but I like the I like the juxtaposition of him, um, how much he has going on, um, how much he has to say with how little he actually says. I think that's kind of a, a nice contrast for him as a character is that, you know, this is a boy with a lot of things to say, but when you actually put him in social settings, he's very reticent. He doesn't talk a lot. He's very unsure of himself. So having some voice over there, I think, does that to the point. And I think that ties in a little bit, too, to um, to the, the especially the dad's racism, which I do agree is like it's too much of a needle drop there to have him kind of go to that. We haven't spent enough time with this family. But the very early parts have found sort of want to set up this idea that the, the trio in the family, the unit, is Marty and his parents. And Steve is the outsider. He's the killer. He's the bad one. But through the course of the film, you sort of see that a lot of the, a lot of the stuff, you know, Steve, of course, is a killer. There's something in him there that that is not present in Marty. But a lot of the behavior, a lot of the way he expresses himself comes from his parents. And Marty is actually the one, in a, in a weird kind of way, Steve is processing information. He's repeating kind of unconsciously, uncritically, kind of even glazed over a little bit, a lot of the same racial slurs, a lot of the, the same things that his dad is saying. But it's Marty who sort of breaks the cycle of learned behavior. Steve is very much his parents. Marty's kind of the outsider there. So I like, I, there's a lot of stuff in Found that is, 
it's there and it's touched on and it's just it's it's all subtext none of it actually bubbles over enough to to feel like they've really grappled with it in a meaningful way but there's a lot of the right ideas present which i think separates this a little bit is like they're not answering the questions they're asking it's not in a deliberate sort of way it's just sort of they, they know what questions to ask and then they're like if we don't answer them are you cool with that can you figure that out on your own because we don't really know what to say about it and like the the parent thing, the way that this behavior, this normalized behavior has been passed down and the way that Marty's kind of breaking that cycle a little bit, I, th I think is, is really interesting. I just don't think you need the aggressive needle drop to get it done. Yeah. And I think playing off that a little bit as well, I do like the fact that found is about two different ways, you know, two ways that we can react to our families and two ways that we can react to our upbringing and normalization, as you just said it, you have Steve who becomes exactly who his parents are in a way, you know, he just absorbs their hatred from the father and he absorbs kind of what's going on around him. And he's exactly a product of, of, of what is around him. And then you have Marty who proves that we can escape this normalization. We can go against what we're seeing and we can recognize that as incorrect. And we can recognize that as something that needs to change. And Marty becomes the person that he doesn't, you know, that Steve isn't. He's able to look at this and go, wow, I'm in a scenario that I can, you know, change myself and I can be the better of what is around me. So I do like the fact that it's both about falling into the normalization and how to defeat it and how to break out of it. And it's a really interesting thing that you see with a lot of people um, today. It bears relevance today with uh, people in the real world um, talking about uh, when, when someone goes to a bar and shoots everybody there and then it, and it's inevitably some white guy who is is looks like steve basically um and the news will cover it and they'll say he was he was mentally disturbed he grew up with a really hard life you know he was abused as a child and then there's a slew of comments from people saying wait 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 wait, wait. i have this mental illness i've i i had a very bad childhood i was abused and yet i didn't kill anybody and so, um, and my father is actually someone uh, uh, very similar to that, where he grew up in a viciously racist household. Um, his dad was basically, uh, his stepfather was basically Archie Bunker in All in the Family without being funny. Like he was, he was like a serious version of that. And somehow my dad grew up out of it and broke that cycle of violence and, and hatred. And he, you know, he married outside of his race and he, he, he ended up just not being a racist, hateful person and, and not being an angry person. And it's, it's fully possible. And there are so many walking, talking examples of, of the ability and the, the desire to break out of the cycle of violence, despite having an absolutely awful bringing that can, uh, that, that can, to, to quote the end of the film, that can really mess up a person, you know? <laughs> it's amazing in how disturbing a film found is. We can still find this like shining light of a message. <laughs> I like, think literally digging through all the beheadings and muck and gore. And you're like, wait, this is actually a really powerful right, film. Right, despite and all of that, like, the, the, the ending is kind of optimistic. I, I mean, anybody I'm, who's seen the ending is going to look at me yeah. like I'm nuts, but... It, I was going to say, I'm, I'm picturing the ending in my head and I'm just like, wait, optimistic? But it I is. don't know if nihilistically hopeful is a, is a real term, but I'm making it a term right now. That I think that it's, it's, it's saying that ultimately you might be able to break out of the cycle of violence. It will be bloody and it will be awful, but it might be possible. I think nihilistically optimistic is my new Twitter bio. I mean, I feel like that describes every, um, every single uh, 
Gaspar Noé film that I've ever seen. Nihilistic happiness. <laughs> that works. That works for me. I feel like if Danny Torrance can grow up and have a sequel to his movie as an adult, then we we can definitely manage a 30-something, 40-something-year-old Marty uh, in a found sequel in, in two decades or so. So I'm with you there. I think I think it's I think it's hopeful. It is. And, it- and I'll chip in an extra $50 so it's not as micro budget. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. You just eclipsed their budget. Do you guys con- consider um, the the parents, when we were talking about the parents earlier and, and how the father... Um, is kind of sledgehammered in as hateful and then later as abusive. Like at one point he punches his his fifth grader son in the face. Um, and I was thinking about that and I was thinking he's got one abusive parent and I thought, yeah. well, does the other parent count as abusive? The mother, she does slap him, uh, slap him around a couple of times. And most, to me, most of her abuses is tolerance in that she just kind of tolerates the behavior the whole time. But um, at, at first I was thinking most of Marty's uh, abuse came from the bullies at school and his parents just kind of, kind of dismissed it for the most part but um it wasn't until the very what was it last 15 20 minutes of the movie where the father starts throwing punches around um i felt like that was kind of dropped in a little too too little too late you know um or not not too little too late too hard too late again with the, just like the hard r that that he drops when when he's saying the m word um it felt like the out of all the characters the father was the most uneven for me um and it would have yeah. been great if they had it would have brought the film from really good to absolutely great if if the parents had been either not really there at all or more even-handed in in the toxic environment that they had Steve and Marty in. Yeah, I I, I go back to over-explaining again, just like you said with the hard R. Did we really need that? I, I mean, we understand, and it helps us see visually again. Oh, wow, that's right. Okay, this is a not great environment to be brought up in describing the parents and their practices we'll say and it definitely drives home the fact that steve is being he's being created by what's around him but it, it's over explaining we don't need that much child abuse we don't need to see that much because we know what's happening all the subtext is there i think you get away with the slaps alone um from the mother you just have the mother slap a little bit because if the mother's doing that, obviously we already know that a father is probably doing something a little bit worse or getting away with it. So we didn't really need to see that as much as it is. And I, I do agree. Uneven is the word that you keep saying. And uneven is perfect because the father is either sitting there, you know, all American dad, just eating dinner, having conversations that are kind of like, okay, he's not, he's not the greatest person. And then you just launch into like him beating his children. It's like, oh, okay, we're just going to dive right in here and just make sure you know this guy's a shitbag. Yeah, I, I think about it a little bit too. Like, I, you know, I think the point that they're trying to make with this is the idea that this is going on or could be going on in, in a lot of households in America. Domestic abuse um, is, is usually something you don't kind of see on the outside. And I think that's what, what adds credence to the end when Steve says, you know, like, this is the, like, I'm doing this for you. I'm breaking the cycle. You know, it's it's a very dramatic way to deal with the situation, but I do, I, I do think, Anya, I think you're 100 right. Do it more, do it less, or do it better. Like, don't don't do it the way that you did it. But I understand what they're trying to do with the concept of, um, you know, the the abuser and the silently supportive um, spouse, male or female, who kind of enables that behavior by not pushing back in any way and the oldest son feeling like he needs to get himself in, in the middle there. There's a, there's a lot of generational trauma that is masquerading in, underneath these kind of serial killer tropes. And I don't think that it's handled great, but I think it's handled good enough. 
Yeah. And I think the other thing too is you're watching found for the relationship between Marty and Steve. I mean, that is always predominantly front and center as it should be. You're watching found because a brother is coming to terms with his other brother's serial killing habits and how, you know, this young child, you know, we get into his mind and we get in there and how that's being either corrupted or how he's getting away from what's happening. But when you throw the parent stuff in, it kind of muddles that a little bit and it gets away from what's important, I think, mm. yeah. at times. Not always. I agree with you. It's done It's done well enough. It could have been done a little better and that would have launched it like another rung up for me, uh, found the film and like where you might rank it. But there are times where it feels a little heavy handed, a little over explained, and it just muddles what's going on a little bit too much. It would have been interesting to see what they if they could have done like a Peanuts parents kind of thing where like you only ever see the fragments of the adults in the background, but never actually the adults themselves. I think that the um, you brought up a good point that um, one of the that, that you're watching found for the relationship between the brothers and that the parents are kind of they're, they're there and um, they're, they're a factor, certainly, but not not a very heavy one. And so when you. Um, I've been trying this entire recording to not mention we need to talk about Kevin, but I'm going to finally do it. Um, that one is entirely about the 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 killer's uh, relationship with his parents, specifically with his mother. And that one is less about um, the toxic environment that uh, corrupted him, and it's more about the warning signs that they allowed to fester, how they enabled him um, to, to get to the point that he got to. Um, and so I think that those are two really good films to watch back to back, more so than The Clove Hitch Killer and Found. Um, I think that it's if you want to watch studies in how someone gets to where they, they, they are um, and how someone reaches a breaking point or doesn't, um, Found and We Need to Talk About Kevin are two really good. Uh, it would make a great double feature. And Anya, I'm actually really glad that you mentioned that because I had never seen um, we need to talk about Kevin. And when I sat down to watch Fine, Found, I was like, this is going to come up. I got to do it. So immediately after finishing Found, I watched We Need to Talk About Kevin. So I did the double feature. And uh, it's 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 a lot emotionally, but it's it's really good. That is a good way to do those two movies in that order, I think, too. And how did you feel about um, We Need to Talk About Kevin, about, about the relationship between, uh, what's his name, the kid and his parents, Ezra Miller and his parents? That. It, that to me is is a best of the decade kind of movie. I it was so good. I'm I'm glad I finally caught it. But it does like it's definitely one of those things where you're like, you're you're playing in the same pool, but Jesus, you're in the deep end. <laughs> Found is good. It's in the it's in the three feeder, but you're like twelve feet and under. You're holding. Yeah, your it's breath. it's a beautiful study of 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 character. It's it's entirely character, and I, I love it. It's less about what happened and and more about who did it, what, who it happened to and what the fallout was of that. I, I really enjoyed that kind of story because the story just kind of uh, 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 blossoms from there, from that core. And actually I feel like Bound is, is something, something very similar. There's not much actual plot that goes on up until the third act. Um, it's just more, more of a, an observational piece. You're, you're watching these, you're watching this, this uh, butterfly struggle to get out of the glass jar. Right? So, so I, I think. Oh, oh I want to. I want to. No, I. I have two questions I want us to talk about, um, and I don't want to ruin the opportunity to talk about headless. Um, so I was going to say I was going to launch into. I'm like, we need to talk about how this film deals with the media at this point, though, because the media I mean more of film and horror films and how they are consumed and the effect they might have, because we keep talking and dancing around headless, 
but okay, that's so, a huge part of the movie. So yeah, Matt, go go my, with uh, what you were going to say. My questions were going to be these two. Um, so this is a perfect. I was going to say, you know, one, this is like we see a lot of independent horror films, a lot of smaller horror films that that are very that have a relationship. They're very intertextual and in talking about other horror movies. So I was curious, especially knowing that the two of you are way better versed than I am, seventies um, and eighties horror in particular. Uh, I was curious about how you felt that the movie kind of, was it too much? Was it too little? Was it too self-referential? What did you think about that? And then let's talk about Headless. It is the eight minute, I I took out my phone, I fucking timed it. The eight minute movie within a movie um, that has, has, even by career horror standards, some pretty graphic shit. Um, Talk to me about all that. The two of you go, talk about horror movies and talk about Headless. I'm going to start just because number one, I love this film for the fact that it has a poster for Wild Zero in the background at one point, um, which is this crazy Asian exploitation zombie flick that I can't even begin to describe on this podcast because I just want you to go out, watch Wild Zero. It's amazing. But you can tell Found is a movie created by someone who really loves the genre and understands the genre because all those little additives and details and going into the video store and this actual, you know, a popcorn poster and things of this nature. It definitely brings more to found in the sense that, you know, it's being crafted by someone who understands what they're talking about. And I like the film a little more for that. This isn't somebody random taking their take on what horror movies might or might not do to people's minds and things of that nature. This is someone who definitely has an opinion on horror films and what they might mean and is here to kind of say, yeah, um, yeah, it just dives right into it. And I, I, I don't think it's too self-referential. I don't think there's too much of that going on. I think this is one of the, the film's strengths and it plays the horror film canon right into Found's overall thematic elements. I agree. I think that um, often within the past year or so, I had seen quite a few movies that, uh, quite a few horror movies or genre movies that, that had a lot of horror Easter eggs in them. Um, and I was talking with my boyfriend about this and we were arguing about it after watching a hole in, The Hole in the Ground. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie. Love that um, one. But there are quite a few um, between that movie and another movie called Anima- Animas, I think. It's a, a Spanish movie. Yeah, on, on Netflix, right? Yes. And yes, there yep. were several references to The Shining and, and uh, things of that nature and, and horror classics, uh, Rosemary's Baby and, and things like that. And we had gone over it and gone over it and we couldn't figure out why these Easter eggs were in there other than to say, Hey, look, horror fans, I'm one of you, you know, this is, this is a cool, isn't it? Uh, come on. I've seen the shining. You've seen the shining. Don't you love this movie? And that, that was um, something that we had agreed that is just, it takes away from the movie and it's kind of, it seems pandering to a, to a point. And um, this movie didn't do that. And, and what I appreciated was that every bit of, horror trivia or, or horror references uh, that was dropped into the movie had intent and purpose added to it. There was a reason why it was in there. And it was, um, it was all, it, it was all to support one of the larger themes of the movie, which was, you know, the, the media and the way that um, horror is represented and how we may or may not take in horror and whether or not it desensitizes us. And I like what was done with that, especially with Headless and how uh, uh, Marty basically just saw the movie and he was, normally he was he would be fine with horror movies as his friend David was um, 
who I wouldn't really call a friend. David was kind of an asshole. Um, <laughs> David was a dick. <laughs> yeah. um, he, he had mentioned that, well, you're normally fine. Why are you shaking now? And, and so when Marty was watching this movie, this particular one, after learning about his brother, um, it affected him heavily just because he saw his brother within the movie. You know, he didn't see his brother actually in the movie, but he saw he saw where the influence might have come from to do that particular thing, where it didn't come from watching horror movies. His brother wasn't inspired to kill from watching horror movies, but his brother's particular method of killing was definitely inspired by Headless. He could see, you know, clear parallels. And so I, I appreciated that. And, and it kind of tied back to that, that scream line, you know, movies don't create psychos. Movies only make psychos more creative. <laughs> um, I feel like, and I, you know what? I regret saying that because now I'm, I'm doing the self-referential thing. <laughs> You've immediately just become meta. I became the monster. I did it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I feel like this, this movie could have easily fallen into that trap of just name dropping every horror movie they could think of and, and trying to score points that way. But they didn't. They, they, they applied everything with purpose. There was a reason for recommending Nightbreed. There was a reason for um, the movie posters that were on the wall. And I, I appreciated that, that much of it. Yeah. And I think the context that you mentioned right there is so important where Marty is shaken by this film headless. And Matt, as, as you've said, headless is fucking outrageously gory. And it is so disturbing to the sense that one of the kills is literally this masked murderer who, you know, Marty is seeing as Steve beheading someone, gouging out an eyeball, and then we even get some skull fucking because that's how fucked up Headless is. And that is the egregious European exploitation that they're trying to create. And they're just trying to go so over the top. And I mean, quite frankly, this is a movie, Headless is a movie I would probably end up watching at midnight or something like that, like with friends just to be like, fuck, we have to see what this thing is. And we have to like, you know, have a few beers and probably have a few laughs over it. But then you see it through Marty's eyes and you see it through the fact that this is a child who knows his brother is committing these acts in real life. And the movie becomes real. It's no longer just a movie. The movie becomes real because it's happening. And he throws up, doesn't he? Does does he get sick? I'm, if I'm remembering it correctly, um, no, his, his friend gets oh, sick, right. but That's he, right. like, he, he, get, he basically turns really pale and is like shaking. Yeah. And, right. Know. So he is so visually stunned by this film and he is so taken aback and just thrown into the darkest, deepest reaches in, it's in his mind, really, because he knows what is happening is now reality. And that context, again, is so important to say that, like, no, horror movies are fake. Reality is something completely different. And you can easily make that context call just by you know going out into the world like you know there's the influence is not from the horror movie as Anya already said with one of the best quotes that she could you know it just makes killers more creative but it, there, it's not the one like starting the killing it's not the one doing all this so I think that context is so important and it really found as a film that has so much to say on this topic and so much to say on horror films and what they quote unquote do to people and frankly what they don't and the way it shows it might be too much for some. It might be too bleak. And it definitely is the guttiest of punches I've seen in quite some time. But it's fucking important. It's, it's important to watch this and to realize that and to be like, yeah, they know what they're talking about. 
This should come as no surprise to my esteemed colleague, Matt Donato, that that scene is way too much for me. And it makes me feel yep, super yep. uncomfortable throughout. Um, yeah. That's... Shout out to the sound design on uh, the skull fucking sequence of, of Headland. Oh my God. Yeah. That was. So well, and then, yeah. Shout out to uh, the Clockwork Creature Company because I, I I had to look up who did the effects on this and I don't know what else they've done, but Clockwork Cre- Creature Company, like, holy shit, you ruined my day. I mean, I will put that out there 100%. And, you know, even just when Marty finds the headless uh, cover and he finds like the cassette holder and there's a piece of paper in there that Steve has written, he has timed out all the kills, he has all the details down. And yes, obviously he has a checklist that he's going through and that he's going to commit in reality. Like that alone, I was like, oh, fuck. Like that hit me right in the head. I was just like, man, I don't... Matt, yes, I I understand why it's too much for you because it was even almost too much for me. And you know how fucked up the shit I watch is. I mean, I like, sorry for just being vulgar and saying that, but like, I don't know how else to say it. I watched some fucked up shit and found is easily atop the list. I think that yeah, I mean, is, for me, for me and my well, oh, headless is the goriest uh, film within a film that I've seen. I can't think of any anything else that's that's nastier than than uh, headless in particular. Yeah, I, I would throw maybe um, Cinderella has a scene in detention that's pretty effing gory, but um, <laughs> yeah, 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 no, nothing else comes to mind. I mean, headless they give just as much attention to because it's such a focal part of found that they really make a exploitation horror flick you know this is something incredibly cheesy from the 70s obviously it's not actually from the 70s but in the context of the film this is something incredibly cheesy incredibly low budget but incredibly affecting and incredibly gory yeah in its time it definitely would have been a video nasty it would have been one of those films that would have been banned oh yeah from publication and seized from from the video stores absolutely cannibal holocaust level basically i mean it's cannibal holocaust just in a different light yeah, and I, I'm not sure I can go out and say that that this that I can justify eight minutes of this. Uh, again, I timed it, yeah. but I will I will say that I understand I understand why it's important. I wouldn't want to lose it from the film. I'm glad that found um, knowing the producers, I guess knowing what they had in the film, didn't try and cut it down for a wider release. It was released unrated and has never had a rating, as far as I know. Um, I appreciate the fact that this is their way to show you the monster that is Steve without actually showing you the monster that is Steve. If his brother witnessed him doing these things in real, in quote, real life, uh, it would change the dynamic of the film. So having him imagine these through the movie is totally essential to keep their relationship intact. Um, and I guess the, the only thing I have to say about Headless is that I know through conversations through a lot of people and reading like what a lot of people have written about it is that I, I firmly believe that the really serious whorehounds out there, the people that love the horror genre, do so out of a surfeit, not a deficit of empathy. Um, and I think that that's what makes this particular scene pretty difficult for a lot of people to watch is you're confronted with something that is not entertaining. And I think I, I think no matter how hardened you are to to the monster that is Matinato's credit, like if you can watch this and get upset with it, then I think anybody can. And so I think they do a really good job of knowing that that the point is that even the serious horror fans, the people who watched a lot of stuff are going to take a beat and go, shit. <laughs> I don't know if there's going to be more to that. <laughs> Just shit. Yep. Nope. Yep. That is the proper reaction. I do agree with what you said earlier too, that there's not a lot plot wise going on until really, I'd say about 20 minutes left, 25 minutes left. And then everything kicks into gear where Steve is committing his final acts and we've seen headless and everything's coming together. But before that, it's pretty much standard 
uh, coming of age beats where, you know, Marty's kind of bullied and you see his transition from the meek child who is getting called names in the bathroom and stuff of that nature to the kid who fights back. And is that because of Steve's influence and what's happening at home and stuff like that? But it's all pretty, you know, generic. It's all pretty by the books. But man, act three, act three just absolutely goes for the full payoff. It, you know, I just saw Ready or Not. And obviously I'm not going to spoil anything, but Ready or Not is also a film that promises what is delivered. And I say that in the best way. And Found is another film. That, or sorry, delivers what's promised. I said that backwards, my bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it delivers as promised. And you look at Found, and Found is absolutely a film that delivers as promised, whether you like it or not. And it doesn't tone any of that down. And that is another one of the reasons why I respect it so much. There is nothing that's going to stop uh, Scott Shermer from getting to where this film needs to go. And where it needs to go is someplace that is just, it's a road paved to hell. That, that's it. it. That's all it is. And you might not want to take it, but God damn it. I, I, that act three is just something. Well, um, before we do our wrap up then, you know, usually we want to know if the film that we've discussed deserves to kind of stay or, or reemerge in the canon. Rotten Tomatoes has five reviews for found currently. One of them is Donato's, of course, because that's what he does. Um, <laughs> how do the two of you feel about this movie? Does this deserve a wider audience or are we kind of okay with where it uh, exists on the fringes of, of the horror genre? I'm going to let Anya I go first that... on this one. I don't think a lot of people would appreciate this one if it were to get a wider audience, but I feel like it's um, it deserves more love than it's currently getting. It deserves to be seen more, um, certainly. I think that there's there's a lot of underneath the the bumps and bruises of of low budget filmmaking. There's a lot of really good technique. There's a lot of really good craft in storytelling that's there. Actually, there's a specific scene I wanted to talk about that I almost didn't get to talk about, but I'm gonna I'm gonna sneak it in now. Where there's this really interesting cinematic parallel um, during the scene where uh, Marty and his friend are watching Headless and um, the camera closes in on Marty's eyes and you can almost see the movie reflected back onto his eyes and it emphasizes him as a spectator and how he's absorbing the imagery he's seeing. This same exact thing is done in the opening scene of Little Miss Sunshine of all films where little Abigail Breslin's eyes are the first thing we see. The second thing is that our eyes are drawn to the Miss America pageant that's reflected in her glasses and it immediately establishes this huge part of her character and her motivation in the story and Found doesn't do exactly the same thing but that moment does fit into the larger tapestry of the film and its exploration of desensitization and how we absorb the the images that we see and whether or not that actually factors into um, any social or antisocial behavior that we display later on. And so I feel like stuff like that is is just simmering all around the the surface of found and that deserves more eyes on it. And it deserves a little bit more recognition, although I don't think everybody will appreciate it. I think a lot of people are going to get sidetracked by Headless in, in particular. They're going to get sidetracked by the um, the fact that the the victims were all of a certain demographic. And it's just, it, I, I don't think it's going to be pure enough for a lot of people's uh, scales of justice within a film. I think that's fair. So to answer the question, I, I want it to be seen by more people, but I don't think it'll be appreciated by more people. Yeah, and... I definitely agree with everything you just said. I mean, that's the perfect way to kind of put it. I want more people to watch this movie. I want them to go out there and seek it out and support indie cinema because, you know, 
I'll say out front, I don't think it deserves to be forgotten. I think it's something that everyone should at least give a try if it sounds like something you might, you know, it's going to be too much for some. If you know it's going to trigger something, go ahead, skip it. That's fine because it certainly will trigger those things if you're worried about certain things. I'm being vague for a reason. I apologize, but I do want to leave Act 3 kind of where it is so people can experience that for the first time. Uh, The things I will say, though, is number one, it is based on a novel by Todd Ridgney. I believe that's the author. So, hey, if you're more of a literary hound and you maybe don't want to see the visuals and, I don't know, maybe you just like playing more in your head in that nature, try the novel first. I don't know if it sticks completely to the film, but might as well just throw that out there just in case. Uh, Number two, yeah, I don't know. I don't think it deserves to be forgotten. I I think go give it a try. I think go give it some due and at least have a conversation about the topics that are being told here. If you ever have those conversations with people and if you're one of those people that is very sick of hearing about what horror movies do to, you know, corrupt young minds and things of that nature, I think Found is a movie that should be viewed just for that thematic element and just so you can have some you know, something to call back to in these future conversations about horror is the problem. Well, you know, hey, here's some context. Go watch a movie, maybe. But yeah, does not deserve to be forgotten. Yeah, I'm with both of you. Um, I I found is one of the first movies that I saw um, that kind of engaged me with the whole distribution space of the independent film festivals, in particular, independent horror film festivals. Um, when I uh, wrote my thesis on that, um, found was something that I wrote about in there because I was just fascinated with how this movie could exist and the people that would have access to it and, and who would get to watch it. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the book because Todd Rigney actually was the original co-host in the early days of Eric Roberts is the fucking man, oh, nice. the podcast that, uh, that I've been a guest on and, and friends of the show. So I remember actually when I was on the podcast, I was like just talking to them and I was like, wait, your name sounds familiar. Did you write found? He was like, Oh yeah, I did. I was like, I fucking love that movie. So keeping it all in the network, it's, it's all, all close people here, but yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's good. I think it's tough. I think it's flawed. Um, but I think that, that it is the kind of movie that, um, I hope that, you know, as I'm fond of saying, whenever I watch something like this, I'm really interested to see what the academic papers about it are, what like the high concept and theory stuff is. And I think there's probably potential for a lot of really, really, really good writing on found And I'm, I hope eventually some people that do really, really good writing, especially academic writing on horror, get a chance to watch this. Cause I can't wait to see what they're going to say. Yeah. My, my review on Rotten Tomatoes can only do so much. <laughs> True, but you did mention the budget, and I couldn't find the budget number anywhere else. So congratulations to you. Don't know how you had that. Probably came up in the conversation after the. Screen. I was going to say yeah, it 8, came up in the Q and A. Eight thousand dollars. All right, that's it for me. Um, any last thoughts from the two of you on the movie? Fuck, man. Mm-hmm. Good thoughts. It was a good that's, one. That's... It was a good one. It was, it was, you know, for all of my complaining about uh, voiceover narration and and the the parents acting, it's a good movie. <laughs> I don't want people to yeah, get turned off by that. I'm and, glad, and I'm glad to hear it's that. It's a bad movie. No, it's totally good. You should watch it. You, if you're worried that you're going to be triggered by something, you probably are. Um, but, you know, watch it anyway. Yeah, I was going to say, like, my last thought on it is we know why some critics might skip over a film like Found just looking at it and going like, ugh, look at the budget. I'm not even going to give it time of day. And that is why we do this podcast. And that is why I love this podcast because – those people are so goddamn wrong. And this is why you don't skip over something just from a bit, like judging the book by its cover. 
um, found has so much depth and richness in storytelling where, yeah, I didn't give it five stars when I reviewed it. I gave it like what, 3.5 or something out of five, you know, exactly three out of five because you feel the budget. You definitely feel the constraints. You feel what Scott Shermer is working with. And this is a filmmaker who's been releasing most of his movies just himself. He just has a website. And the only way you can get his films is to go there and just buy them directly from him. So that is the level of indie filmmaking we're dealing with here. But that does not mean it should be passed over. That doesn't mean it should be quote unquote forgotten. I mean, just because something doesn't have the right budget doesn't mean that it's immediately terrible. So yeah, I think Found is a really good movie that I wanted to cover specifically for this podcast for that very reason. So I do hope more of you go seek it out. And especially for professionals um, and for, for paid film critics and one or unpaid film critics, um, watching stuff like this is, is, I would say it's almost your duty as, as a writer to, to watch things that aren't always released by A24, that aren't um, on the higher end of... of- things that aren't on the higher end of production um you you have to watch stuff like this because then it emphasizes what's important to you when you're evaluating a movie and and how important storytelling is and what that breaks down to what what how can you tell a story with the bare bones of a budget and and what you can do it makes you a better writer it makes you a better evaluator of media in general and so stuff like this this podcast entirely um you're doing the good work here. You, you really need to, um, as as a critic and as a consumer of media, you got to watch stuff like this in addition to your Paul Thomas Anderson fair. Not everything can be the master, you know? Hey, it's not it's not always fun reviewing like 120 horror movies a year. I'll, I'll be completely honest with y'all because, yes, those are the numbers I hit. Those are the amount of films that I seek out and find. And there are some bad ones. Do not get me wrong. But just as you as you've said before, you know, why why lessen your knowledge and why shortchange yourself as someone, you know, championing a genre, I would say. I like to champion the hard genre and that's what I do. So everything is out there. There's no reason to skip over something just because you look at it and go, meh, doesn't look like it has the right budget. I it's not worth my time. Like that is the one thing that always gets to me. Like it's not worth my time. It's like, but you haven't seen the movie. You have no idea. You're judging it based on its cover when I pitch something to certain websites sometimes and I go, Hey, this indie horror film is getting a lot of buzz. We should probably review it. And I get an email back that goes like, no, it's not worth our time. I'm like, Oh, please don't say that. I was, I get why you can't pay me to write about it. But if you're running a website and you're saying a film is not worth your time, then you're not running a website. It's covering film for the right reasons. So yeah, that's, that's my final take on the topic. I apologize for running over uh, Mr. Monagle. I know we try to keep it 60 minutes, but we're going a little bit longer. But yeah, uh, found kind of pushed some of my buttons in that sense. And, you know, just in the coverage that we get out of quote unquote, top critics, not naming names, but I'm going to stop now before <laughs> I get myself in trouble. <laughs> Well, I will give a quick shout out um, to you, Mantanato, because one of the challenges of a podcast like this is that we do, we try and pick the movie for our guest and invite someone on because the movies are sort of self-evident. They either have five reviews or they don't, right? Um, but Matt has sort of taken the point on finding, pairing the right guest with the right movie. And uh, I think this was, I think this is a good one. I think, Anya, I feel like that you were the right person to watch found. And I think that, uh, I don't think it, we would have had the, quite the same conversation with anybody else. So good on you, Matt. Good guest. Good on you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Puns. 
All right. So Anya, if people want to see your writing, uh, learn more about what your oldest son is doing in the world of horror, you know, what are good places on social media to follow you? How do they, how do they find out what's going on in your world? To find out about, well, depends. If you want to actually read my work, um, I have a website on your That's a N Y a rights.com. But if you want to hear me ramble about my son, if you want to hear me whine about, uh, how Halloween six and Dr. Giggles don't get enough love, then, uh, Twitter is the best place for that. And my handle is at bookish Plinko, which is, you know, bookish, like, like I love books and Plinko, like the price is right game. I was drunk when I came up with my Twitter name and now I can't change it because I've got too many followers. So it's just, that's my name now. So on Twitter, it's bookish Plinko. And for my website, it's on your rights.com. Donato. You can find me on the social medias, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Twitter at Donato Bomb, D-O-N-A-T-O Bomb. Or you can find my writing at places like Slash Film, Adam Insider, Flickering Myth, We Got This Covered, Bloody Disgusting, Dread Central, blah, 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 all the places. Uh, Just follow me on social media and I will whore myself out and make sure that you see everything I write because that's what I do. You can find me by just tweeting the words, the Black Coach Daughter, and the app that I have that surfs the internet and find, well, I'll find you. That is what I'm trying to say. Um, find me on Twitter at Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. Letterbox is something. I wasn't ready to talk about Letterbox. I don't know that one. Instagram is, I don't remember that one either, but just stick with Twitter. I, I think that's probably the best one for now. All right. Anya, thank you so much for being our guest today. Donato, thank you so much for being our co-host today. Thank you, Matt Monagle, for just being a great, like, just keeping the conversation going. I'm feeling you, Matt. Um, Thanks. We'll hope to invite you back soon and have you on for another disastrous coming-of-age movie. Thank you. I look forward to it.